0: that's Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I want to talk to him. One of the great arts of conversation sounds charming. The
1: only thing that sounds better is the radio. Well, I tune right in at midnight. Attended to the radio waves. I hold my thoughts till they were just right. Always listen to the Bradley J. I I was opening.
0: As they talked, I was focused so much. I called
1: on the phone in my car in my home. Came out in control, in touch. The middle of the sound and the dots that surround when they said speak up, I didn't walk. Ooh, Jay Talk.
0: Jay, talking, talking, Whoa.
1: WBZ. WBZ, you are Jay talking. Mark Cavallo is in as producer. And we are here with Calder Walton, who's a fellow in history of policy, of policy at Kennedy School. We're going to discuss British espionage and spies, intelligence, history, grand strategy, <laughs> international relations, or the short and sexy version, spy stuff.
0: That's right. Thanks for having me, Bradley. It's great to be here.
1: It's. I'm glad to have you here. Now, uh, A lot of choices you can make in your life. How did you happen to get into spy stuff? I actually certainly understand it because it's super interesting. Yeah, But you actually did it.
0: Well, you know, growing up watching James Bond films was an obvious way in. But then um, I started to read some of my PhD supervisor's books. And I realized that actually there's this huge topic out there that people aren't taking seriously. So you read about intelligence today and we read about it all day, every day. But then you look in the history books and there's just this astonishing lack of attention given to the role of intelligence. Your
1: PhD supervisor, what was the PhD in? Yeah,
0: it was in uh, the history of British intelligence uh, so in, how in did the Cold I, War. So yeah.
1: you, how did you choose that as a PhD?
0: Well, uh, that was uh, just, uh, had a good idea. Some records were declassified, and I, and I approached uh, him, the world expert uh, in Cambridge in the UK, and he said that he'd be thrilled to supervise me. And on the first day that I started there in Cambridge, he got appointed to be the official historian of MI5. Wow. And he said to me, Calder, would you be interested in doing a couple of days a week at MI5 headquarters on writing the official history? And there it is. And I said, you know, that sounds like a pretty good opportunity. So I haven't looked back since then, Bradley. That's been been
1: it. So you're from Santa Barbara, California. Originally, my
0: accent doesn't really suggest (laughs) it. But yeah, I was born there. And then uh, we moved over to the UK uh, when I was really young.
1: Okay. Yeah. So you're working on a couple of... Big projects, can you talk about those two?
0: Yeah, so I'm working on uh, my own, uh, my second book is on the history of um, British and US intelligence in the Cold War. And I'm really trying to answer a pretty sort of basic question that people haven't really got too far with, uh, which is what difference did intelligence actually make in the Cold War? Did it make it worse? Did it make it more cold? Did it make it better? Did it make it shorter? Did it longer? But I'm what I'm doing by looking at Britain and America, I'm also looking at what the KGB, the Kremlin, and the Eastern Bloc Intelligence Services were doing. So we can have a look at the same events, um, big crisis moments in the Cold War, we can see what the British and the Americans were doing, and now what's really exciting is we can look at what the KGB was doing.
1: It's kind of like those World War II videos where they'll take an American soldier and a Japanese soldier and they'll give Their versions from their side on one event.
0: Precisely. And there's all sorts of then you can sort of draw conclusions about how people interpret and misinterpret the same things. And I think that's got echoes for, um, you know, what we deal with uh, today. Um, Yeah.
1: And you focus on the Cold War in this book.
0: That's right. My my book's on the Cold War. But I'm also, the second big project I'm involved in is a much broader, bigger project, uh, which is a three-volume Cambridge History of Espionage and Intelligence, so, this is, um, we're going to have 90 chapters by world experts in each of the periods, starting off in the ancient world, ancient Egypt, all the way through the medieval period, all the way through the early modern, up to cyber espionage today. So, this is going to be a five year project. So right, I have questions. Yeah, about, you've got, you've got I have so, I've got about questions as well. Both of those
1: projects, yeah. back to the first one. Yeah. Can, are there a couple of events you can talk about now and give both sides? The KGB version, how things looked to them and what they did? Yeah. And the U.S. and British version?
0: Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, for example, various coups that probably your listeners have heard about where the CIA instigated a coup in different parts of the country, in Iran, for example, in the early 1950s. Uh, When you pick up a, you know, if, if you're in college and you're reading about this, you'll read about the CIA and MI6 instigating a coup in a place like Iran. But what you generally don't know is that the KGB was also active there. So it wasn't just that MI6 and 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 the CIA were kind of um, whipping up um, coups out of nowhere. Well, often what they were trying to do is to prevent uh, the KGB infiltrating and influencing those countries.
1: What were the interests of the KGB being in inf- infiltrating? Infiltrating. Well, it was part uh, of the, Iran. the
0: the the Kremlin's sort of worldview in the Cold okay. War was to. Um, to influence as many, okay. demo- you, you use the democratic um, process in different parts of the, the world to then undermine democracy. And All to, right.
1: To so, say we them. are behind a coup. Right. It's not like we were alone. They wanted, this, the Russian Pre- Soviets, they wanted to Precisely. install their guy. Precisely. So, it wasn't just us wanting to install being guy. Being the bad guys and, it, and unilaterally. Exactly. It was just a weak spot that somebody's going to control, Precisely. and the KGB is working to control it.
0: And you see, I think. I think it's time for a, really a kind of a grown-up conversation about this. That when we hear about election meddling and stuff like that today,
1: right? Um, we're, appalled that we're appalled at the notion of election meddling. However,
0: but let's be honest. Like, right. there's been some pretty sordid escapades about the U.S. and Western countries
1: meddling. In, Can, in, there's Iran. There. What else do you have? Well, for, I,
0: I've been I've been spending a lot of time um, in the JFK Presidential Library here in, in Boston, and one of the, the case studies I've been looking at quite closely is. Um, by uh, Chedi Jagan, who was the leader of British Guyana down in Central America. And he was, he was a left-wing, uh, it was a British colony then, he was left-wing, um, definitely uh, Marxist, and question marks over whether he was a communist. And JFK didn't like him at all, didn't trust him. The administration said, we can't possibly have anyone like this um, after, the, after Castro came to power in, in Cuba. And the British said, well, we, haven't really, we don't know anything about him other than he's fairly left-wing. But JFK asked the CIA to instigate a coup there. So this was in a British territory. So this was quite an extraordinary sort of twist. Um, and sure enough, the CIA, CIA coup was successful. The British stood back and let the CIA get on with it. And Chetty Jagan was removed, and they instigated, their, they installed their, their chosen uh, man, Forbes Burnham, so it's a, it's a story of how Britain and America worked together, but um, um, America wanted to do something, Britain stood back, and they were definitely meddling in a democratic process.
1: How about Allende?
0: Allende is an, an, another classic example that, that, that people um, point to in terms of the CIA being involved. For, for me, the documentary evidence isn't clear that, that the CIA actually instigated the coup in Chile. But what what we de- what we now definitely do know is that the KGB was massively involved in Chile. So again, you'll read sort of this one sided account of of how um, the CIA was involved in Central America, but those kind of history books often fail to to point out that the KGB had a massive effort to influence governments in Central and South America.
1: So say we're there trying to influence, change things, inst- install our guy. They're there, they are there. Doing the same thing. Mm. How would they interact? Are they, are they listening through walls to each other? Are they poisoning yeah, just, each other with poison canes? Well, what, what are they right. actually doing?
0: Well, I think that the uh, sort of, I think the the biggest um, machine for intelligence gathering throughout the Cold War, to right down to the present day, was signals intelligence. So SIGINT, it's called. Um, so that's the NSA and Britain's GCHQ, and these were sort of the the sort of the engine rooms for gathering intelligence. So. You know, to your point, yeah, there would be people on the ground that were probably trying to find, um, find things and use secret uh, writings and this kind of stuff. Um, that would be human intelligence. But really, the the machinery for intelligence gathering in different parts of the world was through signals intelligence, and so through read, that, reading people's mail.
1: You'd have to bug people a lot, get bugs lot involved.
0: People. That's right, exactly. Bugging. Would that be
1: signal or human?
0: So bugging would be, I mean, a little, little, little bit of both, but it would be where they placed the bugs, how they placed it. I mean, one of the things that I discovered in uh, some earlier research of mine was that during the, the negotiations that the British had uh, when, when colonies were gaining independence in the 1950s and 1960s. So the negotiations that Britain had in London um, about relinquishing power to Kenya and Cyprus and these kind of places, Malaya, Malaysia. They bugged all of the conferences <laughs> that they were um, having with the um, uh, the delegates from these countries. So in the history books, it's gone down as as um, people saying, "Well, the British were incredibly skillful at negotiating a, a, a very um, successful for them transfer of power." And, and what's been neglected is that they were also listening in to all of the secret conversations that they're. Um, other um, delegations were um, were having.
1: So human infiltration is, is a big thing as well. It yeah. gets one of our people in their office
0: somehow. That's right. That's right, exactly. So, And I think no nowhere more successful um, in terms of human penetration, as you call it, um, would be the, uh, than what the KGB did in, in the Second World War and in the early Cold War.
1: And you had some yeah, cool examples.
0: Well, that's right. What the, uh, the KGB did in the, in the Second World War and how they managed to infiltrate to the heart of British intelligence. And what I'm talking about are the five Cambridge spies, as they're known. The Magnificent Five, as they were also known as the in, within the KGB. So that's um, the leading person was Kim Philby. And they were recruited at Cambridge University, my old university, in the mid-1930s. Um, and uh, the KGB officers who trained them said, whatever you do now that you're going to be working for us, make sure you distance yourself from the Communist Party so that nothing will get flagged up. And then they all um, applied for the the senior posts in the British government, and they all got in. Uh, Kim Philby managed to get into the most sensitive one, which was into MI6. And during the war, he produced so much material that the KGB barely knew what to do with it. At the end of the Second World War, Kim Philby managed to become, so he is a Soviet spy working in MI6. He became the head of MI6's new department dealing with Soviet espionage. So that's to say the head of the department in MI6 dealing with the Soviet Union was himself a Soviet spy.
1: So a number of, number of questions about that. were they yeah. Were they friends <laughs> when they signed
0: up? They, they what, knew each other, yeah, the, and, and, and they... What um, was the
1: common denominator? How did the, yeah, the one recruiter that, that's recruit right. them all?
0: So there, there was a, um, a, a one or two spectacularly successful um, so-called illegals who recruited the, the Cambridge spies. Illegals meaning deep cover. Um, and uh, so these were agents that were not attached to the Soviet embassy or anything like that. They were living uh, under a false names. It's a bit like the the TV program your listeners may have seen, The, the Americans. Right. Uh, so this is in the 1930s. This existed back then. So these illegals recruited um, the Cambridge spies, and then the first one was Kim Philby, and he talent-spotted other members of the network.
1: How did this deep cover person come in contact? Was it... A, um, Faculty member, or just oh, I see. It was yeah, pipe no, smoking. It, well, that's just you you, you, you.
0: you absolutely nailed it. Yeah, it's um, and in, in, in retrospect, it's also spectacularly obvious. So there was a Marxist tutor at Trinity College, Cambridge, and um, he put Kim Philby in touch with this person, and the 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 rest is, as they say, history. That's how he was recruited. Did they ever
1: have like a cocktail party where they? met? I don't think they all. Uh, well,
0: that after so then of them Burgess and McLean defected in 1951 was it 52 yeah um, and then um, Philby defected later and they all I think once or twice met each other in in Moscow
1: how did they uh, communicate with Moscow
0: how did they communicate back
1: Are they did they have dead drops Dead
0: drops exactly and uh, literally just just giving suitcases of information in um, over to their handlers in London um, it became they, they were passing over so much information in the middle of the Second World War that actually the KGB thought that they were plants. They said there's no way that British intelligence, being so clever, would actually allow this to happen. So at the moment when they were producing the most information, Stalin said-
1: This is too good to be true. It's too good to be true. Really?
0: Yeah, and it actually got even more absurd than that.
1: So when that happens, their lives are in danger, of course.
0: Stalin actually sent a surveillance team over to London to say they can't possibly be actually working for us. There must be something, it must be a triple cross so he sent a surveillance team to monitor them. I mean, it's just, you can't make this stuff up.
1: Now, wouldn't MI6, is it?
0: Yeah. But wouldn't they,
1: don't they have a department to check up and see if any yeah. of their people have gone bad? Aren't they constantly mm-hmm. testing people?
0: Definitely. So they had a fairly primitive vetting uh, department, and MI5, the domestic one, did as well. So they were, after the identification of the Cambridge spies, and they were identified through signals intelligence and decrypts, um, between Britain and America yeah so they cracked some codes and they identified the this was the first insight into the Cambridge network and when this was revealed then you're absolutely right there was all hell to pay um, in terms of vetting and America in particular said to Britain you can't just just because somebody went to the right university and went to the right so you know right quote unquote, it, the it right school like, then then it doesn't mean that they're they're they can be trusted
1: right we, and yeah. it's interesting in a modern day yeah. I don't mean to bring politics into this, but I couldn't oh, help. Go on, go on. I couldn't uh, help notice that Brett Kavanaugh did yeah. the same thing. Right, he, he kept. But I went reminding to Yale. us. But I went to That Yale. I went to Georgetown Prep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's I went to Georgetown Prep. <laughs> yeah. Why you? Yeah. How could I have done this yeah, kind of? Cambridge thing? The f- Cambridge spies <laughs> went to
0: the best schools and probably the one of the best universities in the world. How they, they get? How
1: they get busted? And did they all get they, busted at once?
0: No, they didn't all get busted at once. So they got busted first through some um, some cables that were decrypted, and they um, by Brit, British GCHQ and, and America's NSA, and they had a code name in these telegrams, Soviet telegrams, and they were talking about a certain agent, Homer, and um, by a process of elimination, by things within descriptions of this agent, they narrowed it down to one or two people. And they put these people under surveillance, and it was uh, Donald McLean, and then that led to their friend Guy Burgess, and then they, as soon as they knew that, they then looked at their, their friend Kim Philby, and so it just it, it all gradually, very gradually. Now were these
1: people working yeah. hard, or was it too much hanging out, drinking There's a gin lot of and drinking. tonic?
0: And the extraordinary thing is now to be working on this this, this subject. Now the MI5 files on. Um, Burgess and McLean and some of the other Cambridge spies are declassified, so we can see what MI5, the, whose job it was to detect them, were actually doing at the time, and they were they were monitored they were monitoring them, following them. And to answer your question, there was so much drinking; these guys were drinking themselves to an early grade Right, it's just Obviously like oh, under, old under, boy, there. It's old. old boy, but also just the, the the pressure that they were under of leading double lives. So these, and it is extraordinary to see. Um, the in these files, the surveillance reports of the working days back in the nineteen fifties of coming to work at ten o'clock, then go out for lunch at twelve, have a nice club club, uh, go to their club till about two or three, right. and then another couple hours, and then then go to the pub afterwards, and then go home. So quite a relaxing day.
1: <laughs> wow! All right.
0: So a different era.
1: Now, are there any movies that are that depict all this stuff that you know of?
0: Uh, I mean, well, um, well, I think my favorite was more like i like more um novels than the graham green novels i think are really um sort of hit, hit Is there spark. one that you would recommend? Uh A Man in Havana i love. A Man in Havana? Yeah. Did
1: you quite... like Tinker Tailor Soldier yeah, Spy? anything
0: by I mean absolutely anything by John le Carré. John le Carré of course worked in MI5 and MI6 for a bit so he knew it. Uh he knows it from the from the inside. So um and he has the the way that the bureaucracy works in these agencies he's, he's absolutely nails it. but to answer your question is there a, is there a good um, good movie I mean what's the Luc one that came out a couple of years ago It was Tinker Taylor wasn't it? No it was um, um, the one that just came out a couple of years That's ago okay. it was fantastic.
1: How about the Americans? Is that accurate
0: Yeah. Really good. I'm. Mean, really, I don't know who was doing the uh, the advising on that, but it was. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. I'm looking forward to a new season. Well, I think no. I think it's the end now. It's the I mean, end. Yeah, it's the end. You need to get Whoa, caught up, the, no, Bradley. The, they. No. They. Well, I won't tell the end, but it's definitely the end. Well,
1: Maybe I saw the end and forgot. Maybe I'll just have to start again. You have to start now, again. No, you, I think
0: it's. I think it's really good. They've done that. They. They. They, they did that really well.
1: Okay, and, and your yeah. book. How much of yeah. this stuff will be in your book?
0: Oh, yeah. It, it's it's um, what it is. It, it is what it is. Yeah, exactly. So it starts off in the Second World War, and it goes all the way through the Cold War. It goes to the collapse of the Soviet Union, and then it ends up in cyber espionage today.
1: And so, what's um, that title going to be? Well,
0: so. working title is probably something like Specter of War. Um, so I think that that has a
1: nice... Specter of War. Yeah. <laughs> Titles are important. <laughs> they are. So make but, sure you say it. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Over in your head a lot to be determined, exactly. It's maybe something else, I mean, that's fine, yeah, yeah, yeah. but you could be shaving one day and go, Oh Oh, my god, that's it, I
0: need something different. (laughs) I've got a literary agent who I think will help me. So, and then
1: the previous book, just briefly before the break, is the long term history of espionage,
0: yeah. So, that's the Cambridge history of espionage and intelligence, and
1: um, it goes way back to uh, yeah, Sumeria,
0: yeah, precisely. So, we're going to get sort of the world expert to write about ancient Egypt and then go forward for 90 different chapters. In
1: 45 seconds. Just one example of ancient spycraft.
0: Yeah, um, code-breaking. So the ancient Islamic caliphates were hundreds of years ahead of Europe in terms of actually the technical side of their... their Code and code-breaking. Yeah, precisely. And it took Europe until the Renaissance to catch up with what the Islamic caliphates were doing.
1: All right. Are you familiar with Abel Abel Archer? I sure am. Okay. Yeah. I am fascinated by that. I even wrote a song. I have a song. Oh, right. Abel Archer. Okay. Yep. And uh, I want to talk about that. I've mentioned it before in this program, but yeah. this is it's a really, really good movie, and it's a really, really good story, and you, ha- you folks have no idea how close we came to getting blown up mm. in 1983. That's right. That's right. Russia- Soviet rockets were fueled and ready to go.
0: Well, as I understand it, so there was this NATO training exercise. Right. Abel Archer.
1: Abel Archer and, was the Yeah, code in name.
0: 83. And um, it was only afterwards that um, Britain and America found out how close, actually, during this training exercise, um, how close the world had come to nuclear uh, Armageddon. Because um, the Soviet Union mistook the uh, training exercise to be a real... Um, what looked like a first strike. Right, because it was a
1: very large and very realistic that's right. military exercise. That's and they right. were convinced that there was a ruse that's and that right. it was actually going to be a real first strike. And the movie portrays an agent yeah. that had gotten right into the head office. That's right. And the intelligence he was given back yeah. was ignored by a rogue Russian person who wanted there to be some sort of problem and yeah and they had this they had decided they had learned and figured out or guessed that no it was not going to be an attack It was not going to be a first strike that's right it's really an exercise and the agent they had there sent the message back you can stand down you guys it's going to be okay but the mm. person who got that message and was supposed to relay it did chose to not do that mm. so for a long time they they really thought it was on that's right and none of this
0: was known about um in in London and Washington at the time it was only afterwards and it was thanks to this uh, incredible agent uh, MI6 agent that they had it within the KGB who said who got the documents and said um actually the Kremlin um was hell bent on defending itself and was really about to press the, the, the button to um def- what it's what it thought was defending itself during this um, what seemed to be an ag- act of aggression but w- right. w- was actually a training exercise.
1: So nuclear missiles don't sit there all fueled up. If they're going to be used, they, you, they fuel them up, that's and right. that's you do that just before you're going to shoot them off. Precisely. And there are a number of them. I don't remember the number exactly. No, no, do I. They had you, gone far enough as to fuel up their rockets to blast right. them off.
0: That's right. That's right. So teetering on the precipice, I think, was the phrase used by one Mi6 report that I that I've read.
1: And to folks of a certain age, I'm. Just barely of that age, this this kind of thing brings back memories. Yeah, of the Cold War, to the, and I was just sharing with you that it was such a real thing, and I don't, nobody alive today can really understand. I know, so no, no feels kids. like
0: ancient history, right?
1: It Feels like ancient history. If you're a kid, you can't understand. You thought you were gonna die. You thought you were probably gonna get blown up in a nuclear explosion. Yeah, people people did have fallout, so called. Fallout shelters with some water down there and a Geiger counter. Yeah, but the most clear example I can give of what it was like is, I lived near an airbase. I told you this. I lived near Pisa Air, air Base when I grew up, and there would be a lot of what do you call them? Sonic booms. Mm. And there were enough of them, and they were big. They were strong enough so they broke our windows in yeah, the house. Wow! But I every mean, there was a point where anytime there was a sonic boom. We would rush out onto the porch and look around to see if there was a mushroom cloud. We didn't. We couldn't really be sure if that was a sonic boom or a nuclear explosion. Yeah. And then when you see the movie, yeah. what was that movie? The day after. Remember right. that horrifying yeah, yeah, thing. Absolutely. That's kind of the. Yeah, that's how you.
0: That's how you lived. That,
1: that would have been the next step from what we were experiencing.
0: Precisely, and it feels so far away, but actually is. I mean, it's it, you know, it's it's not ancient history.
1: All right, quick question about yeah. why the Russians and I suppose anybody who yeah. does spying. Yeah and bugging, yeah. why? The, and this question what? popped up at a recent tour of, it's called the Vero Hotel in Tallinn, Estonia, which only pretty recently became not the Soviet Union. Mm. It was the, the tallest hotel there, mm. and they had uh, two centers in the hotel, one where these people listened to guests and all in their rooms yeah. and at the dinner table, and another on the top that broadcasts this information out. Somebody asked when I was in, on the tour, why do they expend all these resources on finding out
0: yeah. this goofy information? Why did they care so much? Yeah, well, why did they? It's a good question. It's the essential question. But I, th- I think it really it comes down to just a, like an inability to deal with um, any kind of dissent. So you know, enemies everywhere, and the only way to safeguard um, sort of the authoritarian rule is to know as much as possible. So that and, and it was just a sort of an inability to be able to um, separate what's important, like the minutiae, <laughs> right, <laughs> uh, from things that that were not important, you know. So, uh, but but why do they do it? Um, because um, knowledge is power. That's what it basically comes down to.
1: Knowledge, you're having knowledge is power, and they having them having zero knowledge mm. is also your power. Yeah. Which sort of brings me to the next. Yeah. Uh, thing which is propaganda yeah and yeah the control of media and all Mm. now Mm. that's that's part of this all is to have control of the media in north korea hardly anyone has any internet there it's part of controlling the media that's right can you explain now how propaganda works and how they use it to divide countries and how they're using it to divide us and and yeah. get closer to conquering us, or at least diminishing us. It's much more serious than folks seem to realize. They've been doing it forever, they're really good at it, they, they, they've they done it in a country successfully, and we're just another country that's at risk. That's right. So, so you have a lot of time for this part, so go yeah, ahead.
0: Yeah, okay, well thank you. Uh, I mean, it seems to me that what we're seeing today is a sort of a new manifestation using cyber of much, much, much older means. And ends and the, and the, the, the ends are to try to um, but the Kremlin what it wants to do is to separate Western alliances and to kick up all sorts of conspiracy theories um, in Western populations so that, so that the public can't trust their governments okay so and they've been trying to do this since the 1920s. this is the, literally uh, nothing nothing new here. the means are new now but the, the ends are much, much older.
1: So the goal is to diminish your enemy, so you it's it's part of winning. Yeah. And how does it work? How does it work? Yeah, how well, do you well, well in the win? 19, how do you defeat your enemy using the, propaganda? The, yeah,
0: you're not gonna ever defeat your enemy using propaganda, but you can certainly weaken your enemy. Okay. And so um, in the 1930s, but then really in the Cold War, in the post-war period, what the Kremlin did, what the KGB did that was really quite successful, Was to use forgeries in the print media, so they would slip out. um, They would make some forgeries and say that America is doing, you know, instigating a coup here, or doing this, or doing that. Things like the AIDS virus in the 1980s. Remember that about how America created supposedly it was a um, a military uh, installation that created the AIDS virus. That was a KGB forgery, and so they 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 leaked that to um, friendly press, and then other newspapers around the world picked it up. And then all of a sudden we've got a story and it's so this is, this has been the sort of strategy of using forgeries, using disinformation, you know, fake news, uh, since the 1950s. And, and t- what we're seeing now is just a new, a new twist on that.
1: So the idea is to keep your enemies from lying. And if it's a single enemy to have division within, within, so it doesn't stand unified against you.
0: Precisely. That's just it. So, so, uh, I mean the, the best possible scenario for uh, the Kremlin would be to have Western public not believing what their government says
1: right and which by, has worked
0: it seems to have worked incredibly well and yeah so one thing that I'm trying to figure out at the moment when I'm looking at this is okay is this the is this the same as it's always been has there always been parts of the population that just don't believe that what the government says or is something actually fundamentally changed now that we've got? Um, you know, with with cyber and 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 with um, how we get our news on our phones and even on our watches, there's something changed about the way that we actually um, are receiving and understand facts and, and knowledge. And I, I'm not sure. I haven't got any. There's no. There's not not enough hard data to be able to say whether something's fundamentally changed.
1: Or not. So going back to the basics. Yeah, you have Russia. Yeah. Putin. Yeah. Big goal is former to
0: KGB officer. So not surprising that he's yeah.
1: Big goal is to. Diminish us as much as possible. Split alliances. So when you have half the country thinking, well, Russia's a bad guy. And mm-hmm. then the other part standing up and saying, Russia's, Russia's our pal. It's not so bad. That's mm-hmm. exactly what they want.
0: Precisely. And it doesn't even need to be a, a strategy of um, you know, something specific. But as long as there's division, then that's winning.
1: Any sort of division. Also, yeah. by the way, to control Divided your own – why did they fall? To, to control your own population, you keep them ignorant by controlling the press, diminishing the press, like a president does, by the way. Mm. And you can feed them whatever information you want, like yeah. America is terrible, America caused AIDS. Yeah. They don't know any better because their press is controlled. They feed the people uh, what they want to feed them mm. to so that they don't have unrest within their country so it's easy to control the people, mm. and you can also motivate and mobilize people against your enemies. That's right. They're all too happy to join the army and fight for the motherland. That's right.
0: And you see, one of the things that I'm trying to do with my research is, um, for example, this whole thing that we've been talking about, disinformation and, and um, influencing elections uh, for the Kremlin, is called active measures. And um, so this is what what we would call covert action. The Kremlin calls active measures. And how many books, history books, or you know, significant books on... Statecraft, will you find any reference to active measures? Well, I guarantee you won't, be, you'll, you won't find any. And there's something very, very strange going on there that you'll, you'll, you'll read about CIA covert action, but you won't read about the, 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 the KGB um, active measures. And so what it's meant was when all of this has happened in 2016 and everyone's now talking about active measures, it seems so surprising, it's such a, so shocking. But actually, if there had been a bit more attention paid to it in the history books, I think that we would understand that it actually it's not so shocking. There's a long-term strategy here.
1: And you've heard me talking about the documentary Active Measures. If you haven't watched it yet, yeah, it's it's, very good. you have to, have to, have to. Yeah, right, I don't right. say the must-watch, but you must watch. You must watch. <laughs> it's free on Hulu. It's like a buck ninety-nine on YouTube. That's right. And you would agree that it's I good? Would,
0: I would definitely agree. It seems very good to me, yeah. Anything
1: um, else that we can watch or read besides your excellent ma- material? help us understand well, you can this. follow
0: me on twitter and i and i tweet about national security and intelligence a i will and i and i blog about it and i write a f- quite a few op-eds about it but um Good. every day in, in in the current times it seems to be another intelligence scandal
1: how can folks find you on twitter
0: um I your handle is underscore walton That's
1: at Calder underscore Walton. I only follow uh, six people. Okay. I'm I'm going to make you number seven. There we go. I'm very careful. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Our guest, Calder Walton, at Calder underscore Walton, if you want to join him on Twitter, and I suggest you do. Thanks, Brad. Talking about espionage and propaganda and how it works, and we've we've done the background here, and we want to talk about what's going on now and how this may – be affecting the president's behavior and how it may be affecting us. Sort of one thing I, I guess I want to answer one of your questions. What's different now? Mm. I'll tell you what's different now. It used to be in order to have a voice on the media, you had to have some, you had to surpass a certain bar. Okay. vetted to a certain degree. I think I can see where you're Only going Only a, a certain level of person had the ability to speak to everybody. Right. That is not true now.
0: Right. What, you mean because of Twitter and because everything? Because of or? social
1: media, yeah. the most ignorant among us yeah. gets all the news, Or and actually I shouldn't say that, is is subject to news from mm. other ignorant folks. Mm. Absolute ignorance is the difference. And then it's like a mic- the-
0: microphone, isn't it?
1: And every ignorant person on the planet has a microphone. Yeah, yeah. And there you go. Yeah. And precisely. say, let's say I have access to thousands of people on my social media. If they, they through me, yeah. can get their ignorant ideas precisely. out to many more people. So that might be a difference.
0: Yeah. So I think that this is where it seems to me um, it gets really scary because in the Cold War and um, in previous conflicts, there's always been an ability to be able to deal with things that are facts. So, you know, it's things like, um, well, this is an objective fact and this is not. But now, as you said, um, everybody's got a microphone and this is, we're now in the territory of where we we don't even know what an objective fact is. That also a function of ignorance. uh, But that's it, so it's all feeding off off each other. And in the past, you could, in the Cold War, they could set up, um, Western countries set up information agencies to deal with you know um, disinformation coming out of the, the eastern Bloc, but now what do you do when i mean how, do you set up a secret agency or an information agency to deal with fake news well, well yeah that would probably be helpful to have a sort of a fact checker but actually it's what we're really talking i think about is um educational efforts it's going to be a struggle it's going to be a generational struggle actually to, to Teach people what's the difference between facts and
1: fiction. Yes, and, and how to protect to be, yourself against fiction. Just
0: people just seem to be willing to take, um, just just okay. go online and, and say, yeah, you know, it's got to be true.
1: And here's another thing you talk about. Well, people not only willing to, they want, they don't want the facts. Right. They only want to hear what they want to hear. Precisely. And I mean, there's so many ways to get that. Before they were, there weren't that many ways. You got the BBC. This is the BBC. Precisely. We're telling you like it is. Yeah. This is it. Yeah, precisely. And there may be some newspapers too. Yeah. yeah now, yeah. that ain't the case. Yeah. You get people find a little rat hole echo chamber to go in there and they go in there and live.
0: Precisely. I was recently reading a memoir of a KGB defector in the 1960s who worked in the KGB active measures department. So he was dealing with disinformation um, aimed at the U.S., just trying to stir up conspiracy theories in the U.S. And he had a, a Senate hearing and they said, What's, what do you think is the best way to deal with um, Soviet disinformation? This is in the 1970s. Uh-huh. And he said, oh, well, it's, it's quite simple. Um, what you need to do is have fact based rebuttals. So don't get into polemics. Have, have just pin them down on pure facts. And he said, in terms of the public, what you've got to do is read really widely, read as much as you can and read editorial pages of all the newspapers where it's gone through like a pit like an editorial process. Well, yeah. now we don't have facts, they're up for debate and people aren't turning to the editorial pages, they're getting their news from wherever they want to. So we've got a real serious problem ahead of us, I think. Yeah,
1: and there's this is grassroots lack of interest in the facts or aversion to actual facts.
0: And this gets you know, traditionally this was in the realm of secretive agencies, but now I think we're, we're it's not the responsibility of any kind of secretive secret propaganda agency to be dealing with this. This is, as I said, it has to be a much more grassroots educational effort.
1: Right, and when it, we, we talk about the Russian leaders controlling their yeah. people by keeping them ignorant, or Kim Jong-un yeah. controlling their people, keeping them ignorant and yeah. unaware of actual facts. That's right. The president, and I, this means more in the context of this conversation, our mm-hmm. president of the United States mm-hmm. is working to de- delegitimize the fact bringers, the press. That's right. To be just like Putin and just like Kim Jong-un. It works. It's well, worked. It's always works. And he's, he's, It's an effective tool, and he's using it, and people need to see that.
0: And he's also called his own intelligence community Nazis. I mean, the things he said, he said, oh, yeah. he said more horrendous things about his own intelligence community than he ever has about Putin. So S- the it sort of speaks volumes, I think.
1: Thank you so much, Calder Walton. Can't wait to have you back anytime you...
0: Thanks for having me. Figure out really something to pleasure. fill an hour. You're awesome. Thanks a lot.
1: And the Twitter connection is at Calder underscore Walton. I will certainly sign up. You you can be sure that whenever you tweet anything, I'm going to be seeing it.
0: Look forward to it. Brian. Thank you Thanks very much. This me. is great stuff. Okay.
1: WBZ News Radio 10:30. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.